0: Hi everyone, Ben Sherwood here. For those of you who don't know, COP27 is taking place right now in Egypt, and you may well remember that last year we put out quite a few episodes for COP26. Now we think a lot of these episodes are still really relevant this year, and today, right now, is the Youth and Future Generations Day at the conference. And last year we had an episode with Matthew Rendell talking about climate financing and the implications of passing debt on to future generations, and we still think this is a great listen, so please sit back, relax and enjoy Matthew Rendell's appearance last year. Hello and welcome to Knowledge Engaged, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. And welcome once again to another COP26 themed episode where we're now at a point where COP26 is well underway and so we're talking to people from the university to find out what research they're doing to do with the climate crisis and why it's important that we actually take action. My name's Ben Sherwood and today I'm joined by Dr Matthew Rendell. Matthew is lecturer in politics and international relations here at the university and today we're going to be talking a little bit about the finances of climate change. Specifically, who should pay for it? Is it justifiable to pay for greenhouse gas mitigation through deficit spending or is there something else we could possibly do? So Matthew, I was wondering if you could possibly start by just telling us a little bit about your research and how you got involved
1: with it. Yeah. The way I came to these questions is fundamentally that I'm interested in things we can do that could affect people for a long, long time. So if we don't destroy ourselves and survive as a species, we could potentially have trillions of people in the future. And what we do now could affect those people in very important ways. I came to this subject because originally of intergenerational ethics, how we'd affect people in the future because of an interest in nuclear war. My background is in international relations, and I was impressed by the fact that what we do uh, if we start a nuclear war, we could be affecting people for hundreds, thousands of years into the future. Yeah. But as I explored that question, I realized that the place where much of the action is in talking about our effects on people going into the long term future in the present period is on the question of climate change. And So I've come to really explore the question in a broader sense uh, of our duties to people in the distant future. It's uh, part of a question which is known philosophical circles as long-termism. Some philosophers, and I tend to support this view, believe that really the most important actions we take, the most important things we do, are things that could affect people and other sentient beings for hundreds or thousands of years into the future, perhaps even longer than that. If we survive as a species, there could be trillions of us in the future. Yeah if, we, yeah. if we destroy ourselves, on the other hand, there might not be any of us. How should we react to that? Uh, what? How much weight should we give that in our decision making? In my yeah. view, we should give that a great deal of weight. It's very important indeed how we should affect people, and not people just living in the next generation or two, but for many, many years into the future.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that, that is obviously something that a lot of people really focus on when it comes to climate change. It's like, oh, what are we leaving for the next people? What kind of planet are we are we leaving them to, I don't know, pick up the pieces or just put up with? So I know from a paper that you've published fairly recently that you're focusing quite a bit more on the financing of mitigation of greenhouse gases, etc., and focusing a little bit into kind of the public debt and and how that Im- impacts on the future generation. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: With climate change, we know it's likely to have bad effects, but one of the disturbing things about it is we don't know how bad the effects Mm -hmm. are likely to be. And we can't even make absolutely reliable probability estimates. So we are significantly in the domain of what economists call uncertainty. We can't be sure and can't even gamble reliably on probabilities about how bad things might be. Now, mainstream economists have often taken the view that we don't have to do too much too fast about global heating because even with global heating, future generations of human beings are likely to be richer than mm-hmm. uh, past generations. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've become progressively richer. Uh, so uh, people in 1900 were richer on average than people in 1800. We're a lot richer than people were in 1900. Yeah uh, So many economists have taken the view that that's likely to continue. And that if we do too much too fast about climate change, we would be diverting resources that we could be using, say, to help poor people now in order to benefit people who will be much richer in the future anyway. Now, I think there are two problems with this point of view. One is this ignores non-human animals. Even if human beings in the future will be richer, that's not likely to be true of non-human animals. Mm -hmm. They actually, there are many more of them than there are of us. If we're concerned about... You know, pain and suffering in the universe, then we have to take in their interests into account as well. The other part of this is that economists have argued that future people will probably be richer than we are. But if you really drill down into what they're saying, no sensible person says we're sure of that. Hmm. It could be that if we get much more global heating than we actually expect, it could actually end up impoverishing the planet. If we go on with business as usual, the sort of mean estimates are we might get four three, four degrees of global heating, that could be pretty bad. But there are outside worst-case scenarios where we don't get four degrees, we get 10 degrees, we maybe even get 20 degrees. And those aren't very likely, but if they were to happen, they would be completely catastrophic. It's not even clear we would survive as a species if, if we got 20 degrees of warming. How do we deal with those sort of probably low probability, but absolutely catastrophic sorts of scenarios? In those sort of cases, future people wouldn't be richer if they survived at all, they'd probably be worse off than we Yeah. And so it doesn't seem like we can justify doing nothing right now. We could justify the people in that scenario. So, the thing about this is, suppose future people actually do end up being richer. In that sort of position, would it be unfair for us to transfer some debt to them if we use this to mitigate climate change? After all, if we don't end up with some sort of disaster, then it's likely that these mainstream economists will turn out to have been right. Future people will be richer, will go on having economic growth. So it seems to me that from an ethical standpoint, it'll be better to leave future generations a better climate and at the same time leave them some debt to pay off than it would be for us to do too little at this point because we don't want to spend the money. Yeah. And, and then risk leaving them with an absolutely catastrophic scenario.
0: Well, I'm assuming, obviously can't speak for every single person present or yet to be born, but finance depending on who you talk to, can seem very real or very arbitrarily made up. But the actual impacts on the planet are very real and will have very real impacts. So I guess there's that trade-off. I agree with you, basically. Even if they can are richer, they can afford it, it balances it out. And I personally, if I was in that position and past generation had stopped the planet getting catastrophic, I'd be okay with that. I'd be okay with uh,
1: having to pay that back, I think. Yeah. Now, there's a dispute among economists about whether debt really has to be paid off in that way. Mm. Uh, There are some heterodox economists who argue that fundamentally, if you are a government that can print your own currency the way Britain can, then ultimately speaking, it's really a question of just how many resources are available. The government can always later on, provided you don't run inflation through the roof, just print more currency rather than necessarily having to burden future generations of taxpayers. I'm not an economist. It's hard for me to judge those sort of arguments. So I've adopted a more sort of conventional conservative sort of assumption that, in fact, future generations might indeed have to bear the burden of the debt and pay it off. The question then is, is would that be in some sense unfair for us to do that? And John Broom, who was White's professor of moral philosophy at Oxford until he retired Mm -hmm. a few years ago, has argued influentially that rather than do too little about climate change, it would be better for us to run public debt in order to mitigate it. So making the same argument I've been making here. Now, Broom sees this as a moral second best. He thinks it would be actually better if we would really sort of uh, get our act together and spend on this now. What distinguishes my arguments is partly that I've argued that actually it's not clear to me that's even better from a moral standpoint given that if future people really will be considerably richer than we are, as economists have tended to assume, then I think we could actually quite defensively leave them some debt to pay off. I don't think this would be a terrible injustice. Mm. And that is actually an argument, the sort of point of view, which especially in sort of the 1940s, 1950s among economists was widespread, that mm. the many economists believe it was it was defensible to Leave debt to future generations. James Tobin, for instance, known for the Tobin tax proposal, uh, yeah. argued that it could be quite defensible to leave a burden of debt if you're doing it for a justified sort of purpose. Fighting, you know, World War II to fight off the Nazis, preventing global heating. These are things where it's really uh, not something we need to apologize for. Leaving some burden to future generations, uh, they can we can reasonably expect them to help us out with dealing with the problem. I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's a fair assumption. So
0: so we, we go on the assumption then that we might leave this debt to a future generation. I know you've also been looking
1: at what the potential best use for that public debt might be. Something I should mention here is the article which uh, we're discussing in question, which I published recently in the Journal of yes. Policy, What well, is partly concerned to try to refute the claim there's something immoral about leaving debt to future generations. But another objection that some people have made is simply that it's not feasible for us to shift burdens to future generations. We have only resources that we have now. So Hmm. as various critics have pointed out, we don't have time machines where we can move resources from the future to the present. And some people have argued that if we run debt currently, to deal with global heating, well, we're using resources on some things that we could be using on other things. And so we're actually burdening ourselves. It's not as if there's a free lunch. Some people yeah. have made this argument. Now, even if that's true, though, it might not be true possible for the world to consume more resources by somehow borrowing it from the future. But what is uncontroversial among economists is that a country can... For a while consume more by borrowing on foreign markets you can Mm. if you go into foreign debt you can consume more because uh, while other countries consume less the particular sort of wrinkle of my paper we can transfer burdens to future generations of say british people or future generations of other countries which control their own currency by borrowing on foreign markets those Mm. people will someday have to repay that money to other countries yeah But in the meantime, what we could do would be to channel that money into research on technological innovation to make breakthroughs in clean energy. I don't believe that we're going to get to grips with global heating unless we discover cheap forms of energy quickly. We have gone for 30 years now with people talking about the need to cut our emissions. The problem is is as long as fossil fuels remain cheaper or are perceived to remain cheaper, the evidence does not suggest that hitherto that countries are going to refuse to use them the most reliable way to get countries to stop using the things will be to drive the price of renewable energy so low that countries even mm. countries that don't care about global heating will still want to shift simply because it's cheap it will be to discover plant-based meat or cell-based meat that tastes so good that people want to eat it even if they're not concerned about the ethical considerations and that's so cheap that people will buy it because it's cheaper than buying conventional animal so we need to drive that sort of technological innovation forward quickly. Now, the good thing about that is a single country or a group of countries, a vanguard, could drive that sort of technological development forward, it could make itself a leader. And a country that controls its own currency or a group of countries that control their own currency could borrow. They would leave their future taxpayers some debt to pay off. But on the other hand, they not only would have done a great thing for the world by driving technological development forward quickly in a way that could spread around the But they would also put their own countries at an advantage in that new world's markets. They would be technological leaders in green Mm. technology. And so my paper argues that there's both a genuine moral reason for countries to consider doing this, but it could even be a pretty good bet in terms of making them them market competitive.
0: Yeah, this this is a really nice way to think of it because it seems to appeal to all sides. That's my goal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't want, you know... Fundamentally, I think if we rely too heavily on people's willingness to make sacrifices for moral reasons, we may end up coming up short. So far, at least we have. And consequently, I'm trying to look for sorts of solutions that do not avoid appealing to people's moral impulses. I don't think we should simply ignore those uh, those considerations. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, also are not too demanding in terms of what we call on individual people or countries to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's got my brain worrying. That's really, really good to hear. I'm also just thinking about what you said about driving price down of renewables and greener energy. And I completely agree. And I know a big part of that comes from infrastructure. Everything works on fossil fuels. Everything we have would need to be replaced, which I know is a big part of the problem. But yeah, somehow bringing the cost down, making fossil fuels less appealing, etc., And you're right. I would also eat cell-grown meat if it tastes fantastic. I have no issue with that as
1: well. Yeah, I think fundamentally, people, most people, at least I'm guessing, care mainly does it taste good and does it is it too expensive. And so, already with plant-based meat, it's amazing how much better veggie burgers taste now, even cheap veggie burgers, than they did five or ten years ago. I've been eating them for a long time, and I can, you know, it's a safe and personal experience eating plant-based meat has got a lot more enjoyable. And I think. judged by the sales of it a lot of other people think the same thing i definitely think the same yeah. thing yeah <laughs> so if we if we can drive forward technological progress in these different sorts of areas quickly this stuff will spread even to people who don't care about climate change and that's where what we need to be aiming
0: at and you saying that it takes a vanguard state to kind of lead the way it feels like we are in a good position to be that state
1: well I think there's a significant resistance in Britain to the idea of big public projects that are funded by things like public debt, uh, as in the United States. Those are both uh, countries which are influenced highly by sort of austerity-oriented free market economic sorts of ideas, which to me, I think, don't help with thinking about those sorts of things. Back in the 1940s and 1950s, when people were still more influenced by the experience of and Keynesian economic ideas and so forth, there was more of a willingness to sort of recognize that the state can legitimately step in, run deficits for investment in important sorts of public projects that will benefit both present and future generations. I think there is some growing recognition or sort of return to those sorts of ideas now, but it does seem to me that both in the U.S. and the U.K. we're still very much hampered by a kind of Thatcherite, Reaganite, free market ideology that makes it harder to do those sorts of things. For that reason, in my paper, I tried to think about which countries might be good candidates for doing something else. I would love it if the United States would do it because the United States has the largest economy to do that sort of thing, as does China. China either China or the United States would be potentially the countries that could commit the largest amounts of resources, do the most to mount real sort of Apollo program style yeah. initiative on the sort of scale that we need. I'm not sure whether China or United States will do such things. You might think that Germany or France or the entire European Union would be good candidates for this sort of project. In most respects, they would be. The difficulty, though, is that European Economic and Monetary Union means that these states are allowed to run only a, very, a limited amount of public debt and perhaps not enough for the sort of project which I'm proposing. For that reason, better candidates are probably states that don't have external restrictions on the amount of public debt that they can incur. So, my paper is I tried to think about which countries might be interested in such a program. South Korea has had a policy of deliberately cultivating, through industrial policy, green technology. And I don't know whether any South Koreans will read my paper, but if they do, I hope they might think about the possibilities of driving forward those sorts of initiatives with public debt, the Scandinavian countries control their own currencies. They're technologically advanced countries and could potentially do something along those lines. This could Switzerland. In fact, a couple of Swiss writers have made arguments similar to mine, arguing for using public debt to fund making Switzerland a vanguard state. These arguments made in German, I don't think they've got much recognition outside from my article in the English-speaking world, but I think, you know, I think people should know more about them. I think if countries like Switzerland or Scandinavia or, or others are willing to sort of step forward and help drive things forward even those sort of middle-sized states could make a really big difference
0: yeah well i certainly hope if there is anyone from those countries listening here you go this is the this is the message please take it brilliant thank you matthew Uh, i've got one final question which would be if anyone wanted to go away and read up more about all of this obviously your paper for example and anywhere else you can think of where would you recommend they go
1: there are two places I would recommend for these sorts of arguments. One is the a book by John Broom, the philosopher I mentioned earlier, which is called Climate Matters. It was published in 2012, so it's a few years old now, but it's still a very good introductory guide to the ethics and economics of climate change. Broom is by training an economist, but has become one of the leading living philosophers, moral philosophers, and does a very good job of sort of bridging those questions. So. Climate Matters is a good book to look at. The second thing I would suggest is my recent paper in climate policy. It's freely available in its original form on the Internet. It's not very long and I hope uh, reasonably painless to read.
0: And yeah, so thank you so much for joining me today, Matthew, and talking to me about this. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you very much.
1: And thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: for listening to Knowledge Engaged. If you'd like to find out more, please do look in the show notes to this episode where you'll find all of the links that were discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.